First they said they didn't know what Soleimani was targeting. Then they said it was one embassy. Now they say it's four. The lead starts right now. Breaking just minutes ago, President Trump changing his story, now claiming four embassies were being targeted by Iran's top general, killed in a U.S. airstrike last week, as his administration, the president, scrambles to try and back up his story. Hitting send, Speaker Pelosi now planning to hand impeachment articles to the Senate next week. She wanted the guarantee of a fair trial in the Senate, but now CNN is learning Senate Republicans have a plan to fast-track an acquittal for President Trump. Plus, danger close, scary video showing a Russian warship making an aggressive pass, nearly colliding with a U.S. Navy destroyer. Why the game of chicken at sea? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with breaking news in the politics lead. President Trump today ratcheting up his claims about the threat allegedly posed by Iran that the administration is using to justify the strike on Iranian General, General Soleimani. Now President Trump suggesting not, not one, but four embassies were potentially going to be targeted by the Iranians. Trump administration has yet to publicly provide any evidence or intelligence to back up this new claim or any previous claims of imminent attacks against the U.S. This all comes amid a wave of bipartisan criticism about the congressional briefings on the intelligence that led to the strike. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo today said lawmakers had been told of the embassy threat, but not one lawmaker has yet confirmed that. President Trump's credibility at home and abroad has, of course, been an issue now for years. And today's activities prompted this tweet just minutes ago from Congressman Justin Amash, a former Republican, now independent. Quote, when President Trump lies or embellishes on a topic this sensitive and administration officials then parrot his claims to avoid drawing his ire, the situation becomes extremely dangerous for our troops and the American people. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, it's tough to keep track of the Trump administration's shifting stories. Without offering any specifics, President Trump now says a top Iranian commander killed in a U.S. airstrike was plotting attacks on multiple U.S. embassies. I can reveal that I believe it would have been four embassies. Earlier, his secretary of state spoke in broad terms as he dismissed criticism that the administration has failed to back up its claim that killing General Soleimani was justified by an imminent threat. We had specific information on an imminent threat, and those threat stream included attacks on U.S. embassies. The questions about how immediate the threat was have been fueled by answers like this from Pompeo. There is no doubt that there were a series of imminent attacks that were being plotted by Qasem Soleimani. We don't know precisely when, and we don't know precisely where, but it was real. Pressed to clarify his definition of the word imminent, Pompeo paused. Secretary Pompeo, what is your definition of imminent? This was going to happen, and American lives were at risk. And we would have been culpably negligent, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, we would have been culpably negligent had we not recommended to the president that he take this action in Qasem Soleimani. He made the right call, and America is safer as a result of that. Lawmakers say they were never told about plots on U.S. embassies during closed-door briefings with Trump's top aides earlier this week. Not one word of that was mentioned. Though Pompeo is insisting they were made aware. We did. To back up its authorization of force without congressional approval, the administration is relying on the intelligence community that the president has repeatedly attacked. In this case, the intelligence community got it fundamentally right. 
The president's frustration was on full display last night at a campaign rally in Ohio when he attacked Democrats for passing a resolution that would limit future military action against Iran without congressional approval. They're vicious, horrible people. But sources say he's also furious with some members of his own party after three Republicans crossed party lines to vote for the resolution. Now, Jake, the president is claiming that four embassies were targeted. Yesterday, he mentioned the one in Baghdad specifically, but we don't know what other three he says were on the list. Right now, the White House isn't saying which ones were, and they also aren't saying whether or not they were notified about this plot that the administration now says was underway. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you uh, so much. Uh, Let's talk about this. Uh, A pretty stark suggestion from Congressman Justin Amash in that tweet where he was saying that the president is either lying or embellishing, and now the apparatus of government is trying to back up this claim that it was four embassies that were threatened. I'm willing to believe the worst about Soleimani, but this is a problem for the administration. Well, I think the major problem here is the lack of the consistency in the message, and we've seen that since this all started to unfold last week. I mean, not even just the different tone in the president's, or not even just the different tone that the president had, where he takes a very aggressive tone in his tweets towards Iran, and then he seems to scale it back a little bit when he's talking in public, but are cultural sites being targeted or not? You know, how imminent was this threat? You know, are we withdrawing troops from now? We've seen a lot of mixed mixed signals from this from from this administration when it comes to this matter. And it was been causing a lot of concern on Capitol Hill, who are not where lawmakers are not just pointing to the mixed signals, but just a lack of basic information like the embassy issue that has come up over over the last 24 hours. One of the things that's odd, Josh, is, is that the administration doesn't seem to understand that regardless of President Trump and the many lies he's told, This nation has been lied to before about matters of war, whether it's Benghazi or Iraq or Vietnam. I mean, there is an understandable skepticism. And this administration has a well-earned credibility problem. Plus that, of course. And it doesn't give you confidence that they can manage one of these complicated crises well when they say there was, in fact, an an imminent attack taking place. And then days later, Mike Pompeo said to you, well, days and weeks, it's not really relevant. And then today he says, we have specific information on an imminent threat, and that threat stream included attacks on our embassies, which means it included other stuff, too. So there's no way you can point to those three statements and say that there's a consistent story here. And while President Trump says crazy stuff all the time, we then rely on the people under him to clarify and at least tell us the truth. And by the way, why are they defending this whole imminent thing in the first place? They've destroyed the meaning of that word beyond any usefulness. They could have just said eventually, right? That's what they're saying is that they were going to attack eventually. Or or they could have just said he, he, Soleimani and his troops and his proxies just killed an American on December 27th. And they're terrorists. I mean, as you say, Jay, this has happened before. 16 years ago, a Republican president who didn't win the popular vote uh, took us to war in Iraq on very, very dodgy intel and telling lots of lies along the way. George W. Bush is a novice at the lying game when it comes to Donald Trump. Trump tells more lies in the morning. Before we even got out of bed, he's told seven, eight lies on Twitter. So credibility problem is an understatement. Uh, We know, uh, you know, we know... We know he has threat inflation, too, and lie inflation. Today he says four embassies. By Sunday it'll be seven. Monday it'll probably be ten. Daniel Dale will be debunking the number of embassies by, by next week. Or Daniel, he's and, on vacation. And it's, not just, and it's not just Trump that lies, of course. He has an administration of, of liars and gaslighters and fabulous. Mike Pompeo said yesterday, what did he say? He said, we don't know when, we don't know where, but it was an imminent attack. 
literally the definition of imminent implies you know the time. It has to be happening very, very soon. They can't even say days, weeks, hours. Who knows what it will change to? This is an administration that says up is down, black is white, hot is cold. Now they're telling us the meaning of the word imminent is not imminent. Yeah, what, what do you make of all this? Yeah, I mean, I think they've dug themselves a hole on credibility over various instances. And I think you're right that they could have easily made the argument, well, he just killed an American. He's, we know very well he's killed hundreds before this. And so we took yeah. the hit. Um, that being said, I'm not sure I agree that it's largely a problem for them because... American voters don't want to be deeply involved in the Middle East, but they are not unhappy about his bellicose streak occasionally taking out a terrorist. So if that settles down and is contained in sort of a normal fashion and he doesn't want to be deeply involved in nation building, they're largely OK with that. Yeah, I would just say, you know, American people, you're talking about Trump voters, right? They want a tough president who doesn't get us involved in wars. Far more than Trump voters actually are OK with But I think there are a lot of people who saw what happened last week where we became one American killed away from being in a real war. And they took a look at them. They said, oh, my God. You know, look how close we got to a serious war. Look at the polls these, this week. And yes. 57% of Americans, I think, say they don't believe it's a safer place. America's not safer after the strike. Only that, one in four Americans think that this strike has made them safe. And that can't be good for Trump politically. I, although, I mean, Mary Catherine, I think, has a point, is that I think there, there is a large section of the American people, and this is not intended as a compliment, but just a statement of fact, that probably doesn't really care <laughs> about the details about Soleimani being killed and whether or not it was imminent or whether or not it was in months or whether or not uh, the administration necessarily has shifting... Uh, definitions or explanations for this. Well, I also think that uh, draws back to the fact that unless we are in a time of war, unless something serious happens, foreign policy has never really been at the top of the radar in terms of what voters care about. Now we may see that change, particularly in the Democratic primary as this continues. But, um, you know, when it comes to the president and his supporters, I mean, you saw a lot of the support at, at his rally last night in Toledo, in Toledo, Ohio, for his actions. And I think that um, the little details that we point out, the inconsistencies, it, it ultimately may not matter. At the One in four day. Republicans said they would be willing to bomb Agrabah at the last election <laughs> from Disneyland, just for content. And this is not over yet. We've got 11 months Agrabah of the election. Agrabah in its name, all right? Well, to be, I mean, to be fair, the lines are really long. Everyone um, stick <laughs> around uh, just feet apart. A Russian warship looks uh, like it is tailgating an American destroyer as it ignores warnings and comes dangerously close. What is Russia doing? Then breaking news in the Iran plane crash story. We're now hearing from a top official who has heard the cockpit, cockpit audio from moments before the crash. Stay with us. Breaking now in the world lead, CNN is learning about the final moments from the cockpit audio of the Ukrainian Airlines flight that went down shortly after takeoff from Tehran's airport Wednesday morning. And for the first time today, an American official publicly, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, said that it is likely an Iranian missile brought down the plane on Wednesday, killing 176 innocent people. The Iranian government today called that suggestion, quote, a big lie. Let's bring in CNN's Alex Marquardt. And Alex, what is the Ukrainian foreign minister saying the plane was a Ukrainian plane. Well, he's saying that according to what he has heard, that everything in the cockpit was fine. That is according to the pilot, which is another indication that this was a sudden violent incident that brought this plane down. And in fact, the Ukrainian foreign minister has told CNN and our affiliate CTV just a short time ago that the last words of the pilot were peaceful and that everything was OK. And as this investigation gets underway, there is new video coming in of the moment of impact we have to warn our viewers that this may be difficult to watch. Extraordinary new video from a surveillance camera showing the moment of impact as the plane crashes. A bright flash of light, debris flying, the flaming remnants of the Boeing 737 scattered. All 176 people on board killed. 
and it's important that we get to the bottom of it. Today, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo joining Canada and the United Kingdom in pointing the finger at Iran. We do believe that it's likely that that plane was shot down by an Iranian missile. This eyewitness video appears to show the moment the Russian-made missile struck the plane. U.S. and allied officials say it looks like it was a mistake. All of that intelligence is presented to us today does not suggest an intentional act. In Tehran, the civil aviation chief denying yet again the plane was brought down by a missile, insisting it caught fire in the air and attempted to return to the airport before crashing. At the crash site, a witness tells CNN that all large pieces of debris have been cleared and that the area had been left unguarded, a source calling it anarchy, with looters removing items. Many items needed to reconstruct the plane in an Iranian hangar are still missing, Ukraine says. They need to be tested for possible chemicals from explosives. Ukraine's foreign minister telling CNN's Clarissa Ward he's angry with the lack of security. We are unhappy of what we're seeing, especially when we saw that the locals are roaming around and picking things and and touching the things and stealing something from the ground. Iranian officials say the black boxes have been damaged, but they will attempt to decipher them with Ukrainian investigators on the ground. They say it could take a month or two to extract the data. The crash coming at a time of high tension following the U.S. drone strike that killed Qasem Soleimani. Canada's prime minister indicating that may have triggered the events that led to the crash. Given the information you have, how much responsibility does the United States bear for this tragedy? The evidence suggests that this is the likely cause, but we need to have a full and complete and credible investigation. Now, we may get some answers as soon as tomorrow. Iran is saying there will be a meeting on Saturday with foreign investigators on the ground in Iran to reveal the initial findings of the crash. After that, according to state-run media, the cause of the crash will be made public, Jake. Or their, their theory of the cause of the their, crash. Yeah. Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Uh, 82 Iranians were on that Ukraine International Airlines flight Wednesday night, along with 63 Canadians, 11 victims from Ukraine, 10 from Sweden, 4 Afghans, 3 Germans, and 3 more. From the UK, CNN's Paula Newton is live for us in Toronto, Canada. Paula, this flight was headed to Ukraine, but most of the passengers on board had a connecting flight to then go on to Canada. Yeah, 138 to be exact. And while there were 63 Canadians, almost all of those people were coming here to rejoin, you know, those lives that they were building, brilliant lives, which we'll talk about. Jake, I mean, behind me, we're at a vigil here. This is not just one. These are among dozens across the country. Jake, people come behind me and just spontaneously break out in tears. And why? It's the lives lost, really, the people behind this tragedy. I want you to look first at Farid Aradze. I mean, look at these pictures, Jake. A newlyweds. He married his, his wife, Morale just last week. She was supposed to join him in spring uh, here in Canada. They wanted to build a new life together. And then there's Hamed Esmalion. Lost his wife, Parisa, his nine-year-old daughter. And Jake, listen to this. He had to call the school to explain to them that his daughter would never be back. Take a listen. I usually call them, and even she's absent, usually she's not. And I told them that, okay, Rira will be absent forever. So that was a hard moment for me. And I can tell you, Jake, from the office of the prime minister to living rooms right across this country, it's people like that that are really getting 
to people in terms of seeing the families lost here. I want you to look at Amade Gassami. She was an architect, two children, 11 and 8, by all accounts, absolutely brilliant. You know, their father and husband now left behind here in Toronto to try and figure out how to repatriate the uh, remains. And Mohamed Ilyasi, he was an engineer from Ottawa, brilliant, was really concerned about doing good work in his community. And Jake, that's another point I want to make here. These really were brilliant, hardworking Canadians and Iranians that were here building new lives from a government that really didn't have anything to offer them for the last four decades. And it is such a story that resonates with so many Canadians, so many new Canadians, and just wondering about what could have been. What they want now, Jake, are answers about that investigation. Our heart goes out to our, our friends in Canada. What a horrible, horrible story. Thank you, Paula. Uh, Russian aggression on the high seas caught on tape. The Pentagon today releasing video showing a Russian warship aggressively approaching a U.S. naval destroyer in the North Arabian Sea. You can clearly hear that warning from American sailors, though the Russian vessel seemed to ignore it. It's just the latest dangerously close call between the U.S. and Russia. CNN's Barbara Starr is at the Pentagon for us. Barbara, take us through exactly what happened here. Ministry of Defense has now issued a statement saying it was the fault of the U.S. Navy that they were in the wrong position. But when you look at the video, what the Navy says happened is it had a destroyer operating in the North Arabian Sea, of course, south of the Persian Gulf, the USS Farragut. It was operating there, very uh, widespread waters when this Russian intelligence gathering ship came up along uh, next to it and started to maneuver. And as you see the video, the U.S. Navy says that that Russian ship moved within 60 yards, which is quite close on the high seas, of the USS Farragut, that they sounded, you hear it there, the U.S. sounded five blasts of the horn. The ship still didn't move, and then they conducted radio bridge-to-bridge communications, and eventually the Russian ship moved off. The encounter between the two lasted about 30 minutes. Has it happened before? Yes. Uh, There have been these kinds of aggressive encounters on the seas and in the air. But the issue, of course, is there's always so much concern about miscalculation. This is heavy machinery. It's not always predictable, obviously, how tons of a warship may move through the waters. They like to keep them far. The U.S. Navy likes to stay far away from anybody else who's out there, Jake. All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon. Thank you so much. Coming up. Ready, set, wait for it. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi just announced when she's making her move on the articles of impeachment, but some Senate Republicans have their own timeline in mind. Stay with us. In the politics lead, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she is ready to send the two articles of impeachment over to the Senate next week. And as she is, CNN is learning from sources that Senate Republicans hope to acquit President Trump before his State of the Union address on February 4th. Let's uh, chat about all this. Uh, Alara, uh, President Trump just weighed in on CNN, uh, on Pelosi's decision to, to finally move the articles over to the Senate. Take a listen. I think it's ridiculous. I, she should have sent them a long time ago. Uh, it, it just it belittles the process. Nancy Pelosi will go down as probably the least successful speaker of the House in the history of our nation. She has done nothing. President Trump, obviously a big um, believer in the process. Um, I, I, I do want to ask, though, did Pelosi get anything? She's been holding on to the articles for three weeks. Was, was anything achieved? 
Um, it doesn't look like she will get any kind of concessions from McConnell. I mean, ultimately, she wanted to know what the process was going to look like, and McConnell completely rebuffed her on that, saying that he wasn't going to show her what ultimately the trial would what what would happen. Uh, what they want to know is what differences are going to be from the Clinton impeachment procedure, which Republicans have said they want to lightly, you know, follow that, but that there will be changes, and Democrats don't know what changes those those will include. Um, we do know that she likely will appoint Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler to be House managers. How many more on top of that? We aren't sure yet. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, Pelosi achieved anything here? That if you ask House Democrats, they'll say, uh, at the very least, we exposed yes. what an unfair trial this is going to be and what a sham Mitch McConnell's running. And I think if you look at the polling, that suggests the public have been paying attention. I think you know the big majority of Americans want to see witnesses at this trial, even half of Republicans want to see witnesses, although I think they think it will be Hunter Biden. Um, yes, she has exposed the fact that this is a rigged trial, this idea that, you know, Mitch McConnell saying at the very beginning on Fox News that we will be coordinating with the lawyer for the defendant and people like Lindsey Graham saying publicly that they have no interest in being a fair or impartial juror, which is supposed to be their job. They literally have to take an oath saying that they're going to be a fair and impartial juror. So I think the trial is, to borrow Trump's favorite word, rigged. I think that's very clear to people who are looking at this. You mentioned the Bill Clinton trial. The Bill Clinton trial had witnesses, new witnesses. Monica Lewinsky testified via... Yeah, they were called later in the uh, Called later by House managers, yeah. but allowed at that trial. Uh, I think it was Vernon Jordan, Sidney Blumenthal and Monica Lewinsky uh, all popped up at the Senate trial. And I just I enjoyed the Trump dig that Pelosi is the least successful speaker ever, yep. apart from the fact that she's impeached a president. Him. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, there is this uh, reporting that CNN has that there are Senate Republicans who want to get President Trump acquitted uh, by the February 4th State of the Union address. So I guess he could go before them and spike the football and say, you know, it was a witch hunt and now I'm free. Yeah, and I think with the timeline that Pelosi started to tentatively lay out today, that is certainly possible. If you figure she transmits the articles of impeachment sometime mid-next week, we've all looked at if, if it really does stick to just opening arguments and questions and then an acquittal vote at the at the end, that could, that is about a two-week time frame, and that could get you done before before the State of the Union on, uh, on February 4th. But it would be a fascinating dynamic to see if the trial is going on. I mean, Bill Clinton did decide to give his State of the Union address while the impeachment trial was going on in 1999, uh, and it would be fascinating to see what approach the uh, President Trump takes if that were the situation he finds himself in. A great story in the Wall Street Journal today about the Iran strike. This, this par paragraph jumped out at me. Uh, it says, Mr. Trump, after the strike, told associates he was under pressure to deal with General Soleimani from G GOP senators he views as important supporters in his coming impeachment trial in the Senate. Kind of an interesting wrinkle. That's a weird calculation because he knows he's going to have them in his corner regardless. Right. What his, the biggest warhawks like Cotton and Graham well, are already his biggest like, cheerleaders. And I also, I rarely agree with Trump for more than a sentence at a time, if that. But this ridiculous, she should have sent them long ago, it belittles the process. I think it's been totally self-destructive silliness on Pelosi's part to press pause in the middle of this process when her entire argument was he's a giant imminent threat, to borrow a <laughs> word, uh, to democracy, and we have to deal with this now. Uh, in, a, in essence, she's gotten a couple weeks of awareness raising about this trial that's going to take place. I don't think it was effective. She was like, I got leverage. Wait, no, I don't. But all that was knowable before she tried to exert pressure on this. And now they're 25 days from the Iowa caucus. Their people are going to be stuck in this trial. And I just don't think it makes any sense. Very quickly. I actually think she should have taken longer. And she never thought he was an imminent threat. She wants to do a trade deal with him the day after they're done with the trial. I noticed um, that after the rhetoric. Yeah, that's yes. about, I think she dragged it on. I think there are way more impeachable offenses that should have been heard from. All right, everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about why Bernie Sanders supporters should not curb their enthusiasm just yet. Get it?
the big haul he's taking into 2020. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead, it was a pretty, pretty good morning for Senator Bernie Sanders, appearing on the Today Show with the guy who plays him on Saturday Night Live, Larry David. If, if you become president, you've got to be flying back and forth yes. to play yes. him yes. on yes. SNL. Yes, that's true. It's not going to be easy for me. It'll be great for the country, terrible for me. <laughs> I'm getting you a good job for four years yeah. and you're complaining. <laughs> That's funny. Um, <laughs> let's just talk about Sanders for a second. Uh, uh, Maddie, you, you're, you're, you like Sanders. You think he's a good candidate. He's raised $34.5 million in the fourth quarter, more than any other Democratic candidate. Polls in key states such as Iowa, New Hampshire, have him neck and neck at the top with Joe Biden. Uh, I feel like he's not getting enough attention among yes. pundits uh, that, that he deserves. You and I discussed this a few weeks ago on the show about how, you know, he actually has a very good chance of winning two, three of the first four primaries. And, uh, yeah, he hasn't had that much attention. There was a lot of focus at the beginning on Warren, on Kamala Harris, who's no longer with us. I mean, physically is with us, but not in the race. <laughs> we know what you mean. Um, uh, and Biden, of course. And then Buttigieg has had his great moment. I think it's actually helped Bernie. A lot of Bernie supporters online rightly criticised cable news, papers for not giving Bernie the coverage he deserves, given his fundraising, given his volunteer army. But it's actually helped Bernie Sanders because it's kept him away from all the attacks. People haven't gone after him like they've gone after Elizabeth Warren. Exactly. So he's, able to, he's actually able to, kind of, below the radar, has suddenly popped up now with only a few weeks ago. And people are like, oh, he could actually win three of the first four races. Yeah. It's a pretty good uh, position to be in. And the Warren people are out there saying that she is the one who can unite the uh, Sanders faction of the Democrats and the Biden faction of the Democrats, and, and they're, they're out there hashtagging that today. It's really interesting because you do kind of character or categorize, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders over here and then Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg over here. But if you look at some of the polling, if you look at that critical second place pick for a lot of these candidates, Warren happens to be the second place pick for both camps. And I think the Warren campaign sees that as their electability okay. argument. I mean, they've been focusing on the policy and kind of the progressive vision for a while. But now that so much of the attention is turning to who can beat Trump, who can go, who will be the best candidate against this current president, the Warren people are starting to make that argument. Whether it sticks, we'll see. And I think it's important why, and I think that's partly why at the outset, while she allied herself with Sanders, she was careful to distance herself from Sanders a little bit by making sure to call herself that she is a capitalist, capitalist at, not a socialist. at heart yeah. um, and not a socialist. So uh, uh, the deadline to qualify for next week's debate, the CNN is doing, Wolf Blitzer, Abby Phillip, and, and uh, representative of the Des Moines Register is tonight. And billionaire Tom Steyer made it. Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, who has not qualified for the debate, he released a statement that says in part, quote, the Democratic National Committee's debate thresholds have systematically paved the way for a billionaire to buy his way onto the stage while pushing out candidates of color from participating. What do you think, Laura? Well, I mean, he raises a, a valid point. That's something that has caused a lot of other Democrats to question whether or not the next time around they should redo the qualifications for the debates or just the way they run their primary system to begin with. Because another big issue that's come up this cycle is Iowa going first, New Hampshire continually going first. They're both 90 percent white states. And uh, Julian Castro, who now has joined Warren, has raised the fact that 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 um, in a way, doesn't make the system as equitable for candidates of color. Uh, Yang also is likely not to make the debate stage uh, next week. So for the first time in this cycle, it'll be an all-white debate stage. Uh, Mary Catherine, former VP Biden, is capitalizing on this crisis with Iran to make his case to voters that, that he's ready on day one. Uh, he released this new ad today. Take a look at a piece of it. 
We live in the most dangerous moment in a generation. Our world set on edge. This is a moment that requires strong, steady, stable leadership. We need someone tested and trusted around the world. Joe Biden, a president with the experience to lead on day one. With the experience to lead on day one, a lot of his rivals are pointing out his experience is that he voted for the war in Iraq. Uh, he told Obama not to go after OBL. What do you think? Yeah, I think his strongest argument is basic plausibility. I check all of these boxes for a guy who should be president, and I seem like a much uh, calmer version of the Trump thing we've got going on here. So why don't you come this direction? I think that's actually a decent argument uh, for American voters. But the problem with his foreign policy argument is that you scratch a little bit, and particularly the Democratic base is not going to be happy uh, with what they see there. First, Tom Steyer goes, the, the amount of money per minute of speaking on that stage is going to be very, very high. So it did take a lot to get those guys on stage eventually. So I'm not sure that that plan worked out exactly how they wanted it to. And a reminder, you don't want to miss the last Democratic presidential debate before the Iowa caucuses. That's Tuesday, and you can see it only on CNN at 9 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, lock her up. The Trump Justice Department says, eh, not so much. That's next. That wasn't five years ago. That, that was last night. And they were chanting at, at, at a rally, lock her up. But one Trump administration investigation into Clinton, we are now learning, did not end with a bust. It was a bust. A Justice Department inquiry backed by President Trump and his conservative allies into Hillary Clinton, the Clinton Foundation, and Hillary Clinton's business dealings has wound down with officials not finding enough evidence to even recommend the formal opening of a criminal investigation. In other words, you can't lock her up. CNN's justice correspondent Evan Prince joins us. Evan, so, so two years after U.S. Attorney John Huber got to work, taking a second look at the Clintons and their business dealings, what did he find? Not much, Jake. And that's the thing. Uh, the Justice Department was looking into whether or not Hillary Clinton did anything illegal, whether she got any uh, special treatment from the FBI. And looking at this uh, uranium company called Uranium One, whether or not Hillary Clinton did anything illegal involving its sale uh, some time ago. And what Huber has done over the last couple of years was take a look at all of those things. Uh, the president and his allies wanted a special counsel. Uh, they did not get that, but Jeff Sessions wanted to make sure that this was looked at. And while this investigation is not officially closed, there's no formal closing of it, uh, it appears that it is going to be just that, just a dud. And so we'll see whether uh, finally somebody at the Justice Department uh, is able to close this and give the president the bad news that there, there won't be charges against Hillary Clinton as a result of this investigation. When Evan, CNN has reported that many of the allegations against Hillary Clinton <clears throat> came from that book, Clinton Cash, right. uh, by Peter Schweitzer. Democrats call that an opposition research book. Meanwhile, the president and Republicans have, in other cases, railed against the FBI and Justice Department using opposition research and investigations, right? Right, exactly. Back in 2015 and 2016, Republicans certainly were fans of the FBI using opposition research in the case of Hillary Clinton. But when it came to the Trump administration and the Trump campaign, rather, uh, and the use of uh, the dossier, which was the result of, of opposition research, of course, that's what has uh, they've spent the last couple of years accusing the FBI and the Justice Department of doing wrong, uh, of doing wrong, Jake. So uh, 
you can see how things have changed when it comes to this issue of opposition research and the Trump, uh, the Trump campaign and the Trump uh, administration. All right, Evan Perez, thanks so much. Uh, let's chew over all this. Uh, Maddie, we shouldn't uh, soft pedal this. I mean, this is President Trump using his yep. Justice Department to conduct an investigations into his political opponents. Thankfully, uh, the U.S. attorney in question had intellectual integrity. But, I mean, it's kind of shocking. Or not kind of. It's, it's shocking. Not, well, it's shocking in that it's shocking bad. It's not shocking that that's what Trump does. I mean, he's, right, been, that's what I mean. he's yeah. been impeached for this on an international level, and he's doing it in other ways with other opponents. Uh, we laugh at the way that, you know, Fox News is obsessed with Hillary Clinton. It's almost as if she's the president. They treat her every night as if she won in November 2016. Well, she thinks she is, too. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, fair point. Um, but the obsession with her is mad, and we can laugh about it. But as you say, one serious point is he's using the government to go after his political opponents again and again, and he won't stop as we approach the election. And number two, the obsession with Hillary is truly weird. His son posted a picture on Instagram this week, Don Jr., of Hillary's face on the magazine of his semi-automatic rifle, which I find disgusting. The, uh, this was a point the president has obsessed on the campaign trail quite, quite a bit. Take a listen to this beautiful montage. In exchange for signing off on the deal, some of the former owners of Uranium One gave the Clinton Foundation millions and millions of dollars in donations. We had Hillary Clinton give Russia 20% of the uranium in our country. As Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton signed off on a deal allowing Russians to take an increased stake in a company called Uranium One. Now, a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney has looked into it and found nothing. Uh, is that going to end President Trump railing against her? Is this, Are any of his supporters going to see... Boy, that was the, an actual witch hunt. It will definitely not end <laughs> the railing against her. Look, I mean, I'm gratified that it looks like the, the system worked here. They didn't take Clinton cash to FISA and get a bunch of human intel on, uh, on Hillary's gang. So that's good news for uh-huh. everybody. Uh, and it looks like in this case, nothing there. But uh, Sungman Kim, uh, the Washington Post, your paper says current and former law enforcement officials never thought this was going to result in much. So... Was this done just to please the president? <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, but I think it, it, clearly um, we've seen how the president has seen the Justice Department, the attorney general. It's kind of his extension of his own personal legal team for some while. I mean, that was partially why he was so angry at his first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, for how he um, how he uh, his his conduct in recusing himself from the Russia investigation. Um, I do think what we're looking for now, though, is that investigation being led by um, the, the U.S. attorney from Connecticut. John Durham. I think that's the focus where the president's going to be. Um, we saw where that split was going to come when Durham and Bill Barr said he was. They didn't agree with the findings from the IG report from Michael Horowitz, and yeah. uh, and uh, we'll we'll be waiting for the results of that report. What do you make of this all? I mean, well, it, it fits with a pattern of Trump of expecting his officials to um, be loyal to him and to carry out his wishes, also, or to drop investigations when he asks them to drop investigations. In the case of Comey, which we've seen in the past, so it isn't that new. Um, I also expect that, as Mary said, that he will continue to talk about this on the trail. He has repeatedly gone against what Intel has found when it comes to Russia engaging in interference in the election. So even when things have proven to be false, uh, he continues to repeat them on the trail. Thanks so much. Uh, Imagine an entire state being destroyed by fire. That's what's happening right now in Australia, and it might get worse. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series today, 18 million acres of land, roughly the size of the entire state of South Carolina, 
burned across Australia as wildfires continue to rage there. 27 people have been killed, 2,000 homes destroyed. As many as 1 billion animals have been impacted by the fires, according to experts. Millions of those animals killed. And in Sydney, Australia, 30,000 people marching in a climate change protest. And as CNN's Will Ripley reports, with their country burning, Australians are demanding action. Fighting for change. Tens of thousands spilled onto the streets of Sydney. Australians living a fire nightmare, calling on the government to wake up. It's heartbreaking, you know. It's, it's, our, it's our doing. If we kill Mother Earth, what have we got? Unprecedented bushfires, some of the worst on record, have protesters in nine Australian cities demanding drastic action, demanding their leaders do more to tackle climate change before it's too late. Australia's devastation only expected to get worse. The inferno fueled by an historic drought and record-breaking heat wave. Once you add the influence of the human-emitted greenhouse gases, we're likely to see those conditions once every eight years. Many of these protesters blame their prime minister, Scott Morrison. Morrison, a longtime advocate for coal mines and fossil fuels, a vital part of Australia's economy. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Won't the treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. But many are afraid. Four months of fires, unprecedented in their intensity and destruction. More than 2,000 homes in the hardest hit area of New South Wales burned. Nearly 30 people killed. Thousands more fleeing to safety. Climate change is one factor, but 24 people in New South Wales are charged with deliberately starting the fires which are only expected to get worse. Hot, dry wind gusts returning to areas where 137 fires are already burning. On top of the human cost, millions of animals dead. Nearly 18 million acres of natural habitat, home to half a billion animals, up in flames. It is really, really disturbing. This viral video shows a man driving along a road littered with their charred corpses. Carnage only expected to get worse. Australia's fire season doesn't end for months. Will Ripley, CNN, Sydney, Australia. Now, thanks to Will Ripley. Be sure to tune in to CNN State of the Union this Sunday morning. My guests include Defense Secretary Mark Esper, Republican Senator Mike Lee, and 2020 presidential candidate Tom Steyer. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on CNN only on CNN on Sunday. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tamper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.